Obviously. Our first discussion circle was very successful and with your feedback, we hope to continue making them monthly with different speakers and different subjects. Please help yourself to refreshments at the back. There is food as well as drinks. And first, we'd start off, like to start off with Quran by Brother Zain and Sister Mahdiya. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الناس إن خلقناكم من ذكر وأنثى من ذكر وأنثى وجعلناكم شعوبا شعوبا وقبائل لتعارفوا إن أقرمكم عند الله يتقاكم إن الله عليم خبير قالت الأعراب آمنا قل لم تؤمنوا ولكن قلوا وأسلمنا ولما يدخل الإيمان في قلوبكم وإن تطيعوا الله ورسوله لا يلتكم من أعمالكم شيئا إن الله غفور رحيم إنما المؤمنون الذين آمنوا بالله ورسله ثم لم يرتابوا وجاهد وجاهدوا بأموالهم, بأموالهم وأنفسهم في سبيل الله أولئك هم الصادقون قل أتعلمون الله بدينكم والله يعلم ما في السماوات وما في الأرض والله بكل شيء عليم يمنون عليك أن أسلموا قل لا تمنوا علي إسلامكم بل الله يمن عليكم أن هداكم هداكم للإيمان إن كنتم صادقين إن الله يعلم غيب السماوات والأرض والله بصير بما تعملون صدق الله العلي العظيم In the name of Allah the most beneficent the most merciful O humanity, indeed we created you from male and a female, and made you into peoples and tribes so that you may get to know one another. Surely the most noble of you in the sight of Allah is the most righteous among you. Allah is truly all-knowing, all-aware. Some of the nomadic Arabs say, we believe. Say, O Prophet, you have not believed, but say, we have submitted, for faith has not yet entered your hearts. But if you obey Allah and his messenger wholeheartedly, he will not discount anything from the reward of your deeds. Allah is truly all-forgiving, most merciful. The true believers are only those who believe in Allah and his messenger, never doubting and strive with their wealth and their lives in the cause of Allah. They are the ones true in faith. 
Say, do you inform Allah of your faith when Allah already knows whatever is in the heavens and whatever is on the earth, and Allah has perfect knowledge of all things? They regard their acceptance of Islam as a favor to you. Tell them, O Prophet, do not regard your Islam as a favor to me. Rather, it is Allah who has done you a favor by guiding you to the faith, if indeed you are faithful. Surely Allah knows the unseen of the heavens and earth, and Allah is all-seeing of what you do. Salawat. Thank you. So that was Surah Hujarat, Ayah 13 to 18. Now the themes we'll be discussing tonight are weddings, celebration and commemoration rituals, hijab, gender roles, and parent and children relationships. Now, to make this more interactive, we'll get you guys into mini discussion circles of four to six people and have you start off by discussing what parts of that theme is cultural and what parts are religion. So for example, for a wedding, the nikah is obviously religious, but the dress and the food that we serve is all cultural. You can divide your chart paper, which will be handed out to each group, into cultural on one side and religious on one side, and then write your notes under each side. Um, then we will open the floor to questions on that subject where Milana Rizvi will provide his insight and then we will move on to the next theme. At the end, we will also have 15 minutes of open the floor to questions. We will also have 15 minutes to open the floor to questions on any subject. So that's where you can ask anything you'd like. Um, now, without further ado, please welcome Milana Rizvi with a loud salawat. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان العين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء وخاتم المرسلين سيدنا ونبينا بالقاسم محمد ولا أهل بيت التيبين الطاهر المعصومين واللانة دامة الباقي لعدائهم من الآن إلى قيام يوم الدين Amabad, sisters and brothers in Iman, Salaamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullah. Come on, that's Islamic, not cultural. I didn't hear the answer. Okay. <clears throat> I would like to take this opportunity to very briefly talk about the relationship between religion and culture. Um, just to give you an oral perspective about it before we go into specific examples, let me start with this uh, words from Surah Araf, ayat number 158, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands the Prophet by saying, Qul nas, inni jami'an. That, O Muhammad, say, O the people. So the address is not to Ya Amun, it's not to the Mu'mineen. It is actually to the human, human society in general. Say to them, Inni Rasulullahi ilaykum jami'an, that I am the messenger of Allah to all of you. It means that Islam is a world religion. It's not confined to one area or one tribe or nation. Um, but we know the reality that, you know, Islam began in the Middle East, in the Arabian Peninsula. The Prophet was born in the Arab society among the Quraysh. And the language of that people in that time frame was Arabic. So the Quran also was revealed in the Arabic language. And this is where the issue comes up that, you know, when we talk about 
Islam is a universal religion, a global religion. How does it interact with, uh, you know, various cultures around the world? And this is where we have to realize that universality of Islam means that it has this ability to manifest in different cultures around the world. It would modify the cultures, but still, you know, allow the very variety or the diversity of the culture in the, in the human society. When we talk about the world culture here, what we mean is that the product of human interaction with one another and with the environment in which the people live at that given time or place. The cultural issues, you know, they depend on the national resources that every community uh, has in their own area and the level of knowledge and technology that they use to exploit the nature. For example, when you talk about nature, uh, about language, about dress, about food, these are all cultural issues and this is where we have to see how does Islam interact with the cultural issues of the people around the world. Let me just very quickly say there are two aspects of Islam. And Islam interacts with the world on two different levels in two different ways. When it comes to the belief system, when we talk about Tawheed or Nubuwat or, or Qiyamat, when we talk about the code of uh, worship, Ibadat, Namaz and, you know, uh, prayers and things like that, Islam basically, wherever it has come, it has completely transformed the belief system. For example, Iranians were Zoroastrians. They were worshippers of the fire, for example. Or the, the people who converted in India were Hindu idol worshippers. Or even the people of Mecca uh, who converted to Islam, they were idol worshippers. When Islam comes, when it comes to the belief system, Islam doesn't compromise there. There is a total transformation of the belief system. The old one will go out and Islam will come in. But then we, uh, and, and this is where we, we see that, you know, when it comes to the belief system and the rituals that we do, there is no uh, issue of, you know, compromise on that issue. The Qur'an, when it uses this uh, ayat in Surah Kafirun, لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ My religion to me, your religion to you. We don't mix things as far as the belief system and the festivals of one another is concerned. But when it comes to the way of life, the lifestyle, this is where Islam actually gives, you know, freedom to different cultures and nations around the world it doesn't totally transform their culture. It, it modifies things that whatever you have been doing, the language that you had, the, clo the clothing that you had, the, the food that you e eat, when you become Muslim, you don't have to put on the Arab clothes. When you become Muslim in India, for example, you don't have to uh, start eating Arab food. No, this is not what Islam is saying. You can still maintain your cultural aspects but it should be now modified in, in line with the religious laws. So there will be modification, not total transformation, unlike the belief system. So when it comes to the issue of culture, you know, Islam gives a lot of, uh, you know, space as far as uh, <clears throat> the culture is concerned. Let me just give you one example before I end. I don't want to make it as long speech here. Look at the teaching of you know, modesty in Islam when it comes to the dress for women. 
And I'm not just speaking on hijab, I'm just using it because it's the most obvious example and easier to explain. Quran in Surah Nur and Surah Ahzab talks about it. You know that when, uh, when a lady, for example, goes into a place where there are known mahram people, she has to cover her, her body in a certain way. Now, this is an ongoing teaching which doesn't change with time and, and, and place. But what about the style? The style, the material, the color, these are all cultural issues. And so you will see, for example, Muslims of different parts of the world, you know, implemented the same teaching of the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet, but according to their own cultural setting. The Arab women, they adapted their own what is known as abaya. When Islam reached to Persia, for example, they didn't start wearing abaya. The Persian Muslim women of the early days, they, you know, looked at their own uh, cultural ways of dress and started wearing what is known as chador, which is different from abaya. Then Islam reaches to these uh, South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, that area, or, or Afghanistan. There you will see, according to their own ways, they started wearing what is known as parda. Parda is actually two-piece, uh, you know, one is more, more, or more or less like a skirt, and then other is a, um, <coughs> you know, covering that they put on their head, and their hands are actually free, more easier than abaya or, um, or chador. You go to Indonesia, there is something known as uh, kedur, um, which is a different form of hijab that they use. You go to East Africa, you know, the Swahili Muslim women would be using what is known as buibui. Names change, the style change, the color change, the combinations will change, but all of them are following the same Islamic teachings. All of them are equally Islamic. And this is where you come to see that, you know, how Islam interacts in different, uh, you know, cultures around the, around the world. And so there is no way of running away from tradition or culture. This is what I would like to say. Sometimes people say, you know, I only want to follow religion. You have to realize that a religion cannot manifest but within a given culture. It's the only thing in Islam is that Whatever culture you adapt, it has to be modified according to the values of Islam. Wassalamu alaikum Okay, assalamu everyone. So we're just gonna go into the activity and just briefly explain how it's gonna go about. Uh, so as Amna mentioned earlier, we want this to be an interactive session for everyone. So we want you to discuss with one another and then give us your opinions on the various topics we're gonna discuss today. So if you can just get into groups of four or five for with the people that are next to you and the GIY members, they're gonna hand out a piece of paper with some markers. So as the themes are getting discussed, you can input your ideas for culture versus religion. That's the cultural and just religion aspects of that. Uh, Malanj is going to give us a brief um, understanding of the topic so we can easily discuss this within our group.
So what we'll do is we'll first start off with any ideas that you have about wedding in terms of cultural, religious aspects which you think. Uh, just discuss within your group and just write down your ideas. And then we'll just go ahead and share that and then we'll go from there. So we're going to take about five minutes for that. Okay, the <clears throat> on the religious part, we heard that Aqd is the religious part of it, <clears throat> and Walima, um, Walima, the reception or the dinner given after that or next day or whenever, is part of the uh, religious part of it. What about biryani? That's cultural wrong. <laughs> this is where I would like to emphasize the point. When you talk about religion and culture, you cannot really always separate one from the other. <clears throat> so Walima, which is feeding the people as a celebration for the wedding, is a religious part. That is sunnah. It is considered to one of the sunnah of the prophets. <clears throat> but what do you feed, again, is a cultural issue. You come here, it's biryani, you go somewhere else, it's chalo kebab. Okay, so it, it depends on the cultural issue. So this is again one example where religion and culture basically interacts quite a lot. You cannot really separate religion from uh, culture in that way. <clears throat> um, when it comes to the issue of uh, dowry, I think that's, that's a very important issue. That is an issue which uh, also is a problem. Uh, in, in many South Asian uh, societies where they have been influenced by the Hindu culture is that the girl's family have to provide what is known as dowry. It's everything to do with the household, you know, items. <clears throat> um, the boy's side would actually send a list of what they want. And the girl's side has to uh, provide that. This is the influence of the Hindu culture among Muslims from South Asia. Whereas Islam is a very different way of looking at it. When we talk about marriage, we talk about mahar. Mahar is where 
um, you know, the, the groom has to give something to the, to the bride. Um, of course, I, we do not mean to say that if the girl's family want to um, provide or give gifts to the, uh, to the daughter to make her life easy, it's not something which is forbidden. But to make it as a demand in marriage is against the Islamic values. That is not acceptable. Um, in certain cultures, they have actually used it in a very interesting way. For example, in Iran, what they do is they talk about dividing the mahar into two parts. One is, you know, in advance and one is upon demand. So maybe half of it will be asked that, you know, give us... Give, give, give that to us in advance. And that money is then used to buy items for the, for the bride. And then the other half is left, you know. Uh, but they also then sometimes go over the board when they put a very huge amount of mahr. There are families in Iran, one of the biggest problems they have is the issue of weddings. There are nikahs done and 10 years has passed, they have not done the wedding because the meher included in the agreement was very huge, which the guy could not yet accumulate that much. And so we had to realize that, you know, it is a shari issue, but because of the cultural elements, and it can become a, a problem. So we have to realize that the religious part of it is that make it simple, make it something which is practical and, you know, respectable for both parties. <clears throat> when we talk about this issue of, you know, uh, choosing the spouse, ethnicity and culture, well, religiously, if you ask from the religious point of view, what is the criteria? Um, there is a very famous hadith which is used in the Shia laws as the basis for this issue. Al-mu'minu kufu al-mu'mina. A mu'min, a, 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 mu'min, a Shia-believing person is compatible to a believing uh, Shia woman as far as marriage is concerned, irrespective of their um, you know, race or ethnicity or status background. But that doesn't mean that Islam says that you must actively go and look for somebody outside your culture. No, that, you know... It is very normal for people to feel more comfortable with the people of their own kind when it comes to the language, the culture, the lifestyle. And that is norm. What will be a problem when the criteria is that, you know, this fellow is fine or this girl is good, but she is not from our qabila, not from our tribe. That's where the problem comes from the Islamic point of view. So, uh, especially when, when, you know, if you lived in areas where you were in your own ethnicity, in India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, or East Africa, you would be moving around in your own circles, and they were, that was fine. You come to the western part of the world, you will see that there are, you know, uh, Shias coming from different ethnic backgrounds. And we see already in Toronto area, there are many... Um, marriages taking place between Shia boys and girls who are not necessarily from, from the same ethnic or cultural background. 
And so that is nothing, and it's not an issue from the Islamic point of view. Of course, you know, parents always uh, have a worry about it, that they are from different culture, we don't know what will happen, uh, things will work out or not. Those concerns are valid, but you know, maybe they should also have some openness in their mind to sit down and, you know, talk and discuss with the boy or the girl from the other side, just to know them better, and then that will be, that will eliminate, you know, uh, the doubts or the hesitations or apprehensions that they have about the difference in culture. Uh, so that's, you know, it, it, it's, it's a given that Islam considers Iman and Akhlaq to be the main, uh, you know, criteria as far as marriage is concerned. Uh, but we cannot totally discount the issue of, you know, cultural uh, compatibility. It makes life much easier if it's from the same culture background anyway. Have I missed out anything else here? Yeah, okay. Um, why, uh, father's permission for the girl who is marrying for the first time. Uh, this is, of course, a Shari issue among the uh, Shia uh, jurists. Um, majority of them actually based on precaution. They put that as a condition. And this is more just to make sure that, um, you know, when the girl is getting married for the first time, you know, the decision is being made on um, proper basis. It is not just an emotional issue. But if it reaches to a point where the father is refusing the permission for grounds which are not acceptable in Islam, like this whole issue of cultural, you know, uh, difference. If they say everything is good, but because he is not, you know, uh, you know, not from some, our own uh, tribe, so we are not going to accept him. But that is not acceptable. And in that case, the girl has the right to go to uh, the marja or one of uh, the wakala, the wakil of the marja who is authorized in these matters. And he will then give her the permission, against the permission of the father, to go ahead with that nikah. And that would be a valid, uh, you know, act. And so the, the father has been given that, that, can, that, that authority but that is for the interest of the girl and not for this some um, other, you know, uh, un-Islamic uh, values that they might have in their minds. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Malana, for providing the insights. I want to open the floor up to any questions about the theme of weddings. If anyone from the boys or uh, girls or men, men's or ladies side has any questions. And if you don't want to ask your question on the mic, you can also just write your question down on a piece of paper. Uh, that just in that basket, and Zane will provide on the men's side, and the GI member will provide that on the girl's side. I see no hands, so I don't think anyone has a question. So, no question? Yeah, I think all the details were there. So, the next topic we're going to look at, um, so just in the same sheet, you can write your ideas in the same groups. I'll ask a question. <laughs> All right, so sometimes in engagements, some cultures also do their nikah then. Is it better to do your nikah at the engagement time or is it better to wait until marriage? 
engagement doesn't have any legal uh, recognition in Islam. Engagement just means that two individuals have promised to marry one another. But that promise is not binding. It can be broken off. You know, it's not that, oh, you're promised and so you are stuck with that. No. And that's where engages, engagements happen and then it's even sometimes doesn't work. And so from Islam, that doesn't create any relationship as such. So, um, when we talk about engagement and then the wedding, whether we do the nikah, it's better to do the nikah at the wedding time. But if you're going through the engagement the way it is done now, we have to realize there are some implications as far as the Sharia is concerned. Since uh, engagement is not recognized in, in, in our Sharia, it doesn't create mahramiyat. They don't become mahram to one another. And culturally, we have ceremonies, you know, for um, engagement, you know, rings and this and that, which actually comes from the West, actually. It was in the 15th century that one of the kings, Roman Catholic king, you know, he gave the ring to his uh, prospective bride, and that is how the tradition, you know, has become more, you know, global even among Muslims. And so that even that tradition of um, exchanging the, the rings or making one another wear it um, would not be acceptable from the Sharia point of view. And therefore, what I, what I suggest many times is that if you want to go through that ceremony, then at least you should recite what is known as temporary nikah. To become mahram to one another for the sake of that engagement ceremony. And that would be just for that purpose of becoming mahram. What I would suggest, you know, the problem is, you know, our people, especially from South Asian background, they live their lives according to the drama and movies of India. And from what I hear is engagement ceremonies are becoming so elaborate. And I would suggest, you know, just make it very simple. Don't take the mystique away from the wedding ceremony. Let that be the way it is. You know, don't, don't make it a mini marriage when it comes to the ceremony of, of engagement. And so then, because Islamically there is, there is no such thing as engagement ceremony as such. Okay? We have another question on the ladies' side. Um, okay, is it true that a Sayyid can marry a non-Sayyid, but a female Sayyidah has to marry a Sayyid? As I said earlier, Al-Mu'minu kufu al-Mu'min. A believing man, a Shia man, and a believing Shia woman are compatible to one another in marriage irrespective of their ethnicity, their family line, their status. So even when it comes to the issue of marriage between Sayyid and non-Sayyid, religiously there is no difference there. Yes, culturally, especially among the uh, Shias in India and Pakistan especially, this has become an issue. 
where they say that a marriage between Sayyid and non-Sayyid is not acceptable, especially if the girl is from Sayyid family and the boy is not from the Sayyid family. Again, I will say just like the dowry issue, this is an impact of the Hindu culture among Muslims in, in South Asia. You see, uh, Hindus have this caste system where they divide the people into four different, you know, castes. Um, the Brahman are at the top, and the, um, there is a, true, a group known as Achut, the untouchable ones at the bottom. They are all of the same religion. But the ones who are Brahman, if a person from the untouchable even touches them by mistake, he has to go and do ghusl. Although they are from the same religion. And they cannot marry, you know, in, in different castes. That influence has come. So, you know, some of these Shias there have put the Sayyid as a Brahman on that category. So they are at the upper scale of the uh, society. Uh, but from the religious point of view, no, that's, that's not the uh, case. Um, if you look at Imam Khomeini, his, he was a Sayyid. His son-in-law was Sheikh. Sheikh means somebody who is not a Sayyid. His Amama would be white. Ayatollah Gulpaigani, his, uh, the late Ayatollah Gulpaigani, his son-in-law, who is in the Marja now, uh, Sheikh Lutfullah Safi, he is a Sheikh. Um, and many other, uh, you know, prominent scholars, uh, you will see that their son-in-laws are not necessarily uh, from the Sadat. And if you lived in Toronto with me, you would know probably that. Okay? Is there any other questions from the gents? Yeah, there's a question from the gents. Assalamu <clears throat> alaikum. Uh, what does the, uh, the age uh, difference between man and woman come into this issue? Please. The age gap between men and women in marriage um, again, religiously, there is no fixed criteria, but the norm, even in Islam, is that, you know, the, the man has to be um, maybe older than the woman. But what should be the gap? Um, there is no sh religious criteria for that. What I would say based on my observation of dealing with the communities for so many years. Um, you know, I think seven years between should be okay. Seven to eight. But you're talking about 10 or more, then that would be probably not a wise uh, situation. Of course, you know, Rasulullah's first marriage is very different. But even there, the gap is not what we hear uh, quite a lot from many, many. Because if you do the research about Bibi Khadija, she was only three years older than Rasulullah. So the gap was not about 10 or 15 years in between, no. <clears throat> but all the other imams, if you see, they, um, there, there has been a gap between the man and the woman.
Is there any other question? I'll ask another question. Um, so I feel like lately, like I know Islam says that it's better to marry at a young age, if I understand correctly. But I feel like lately, especially in our culture, there's a lot of pressure on women to get made earlier and earlier because they're worried that they're going to get too old or that they won't be, I guess, I don't know, better, like good enough anymore. I guess, what does Islam have to say about that? Like, there, should there be that pressure on women compared to men who have all the time in the world, apparently? <laughs> From the Islamic point of view, the pressure is on both, not only the women. The, see, Islam deals with the nature of the human being. The problem is that we have um, changed our lifestyle, especially in the modern era, in such a way that you know, the, the feelings, the physical desires or emotions that people have is still at the same age range when it starts. But when it comes to the marriage, we are postponing further up and up and up. Um, men as well as women, they say, oh, I want to settle, settle down. Well, what, what is settling down? Sometimes I hear the excuse when the parents come and complain and I said, okay, let's, let's sit down with your son or daughter. They say, well, Molana, I want to find myself first. But how are you going to find yourself? You need somebody to find you. Huh? These are all just, you know, very mythical things they bring up. I have to find myself before I get settled down and met, get married. It might take you 30 years to do that. And so... You know, we talk about economic, you know, stability, financial stability. Um, sometimes education is used, or that, that could be a uh, barrier because of the ma marriage. Islam basically says that if we start with a very simple lifestyle, get married, and you can still have your education. I don't think marriage can be a barrier as far as continuing the education is concerned. You know, if you have a simple lifestyle, then both can help one another to build their life, to build their financial, you know, base. And then they can appreciate one another more. And they will go through that experience of, you know, we, were, we had a very simple lifestyle and then we work together and help one another and we have a good, good standard of uh, living. And unfortunately, future things don't work very well. They, they can always go back to their early experience. And they say, we did that during the early stage, we can do it now. And so Islam emphasizes not only for the girls, but even for the boys, to get married, you know, um, when it's possible. Now, I wouldn't put the age as, as, as such. I would say maybe... Um, you know, when you're talking about early 20s for the uh, girls and mid-20s for the boys. Not to delay more than that. University education does not prevent, you know, one or the other from continuing their education. If you're even concerned about it, put it part of your marriage contract. That, you know, the, the husband will not only stop me, but pay for my tuition. 
you know, so your, your education would be guaranteed in that way. In the interest of time, we're just going to take one more question and move on to the next theme. Is there any question on the guy's side? Yeah? So I know that these, uh, Islam has recommendations regarding the time. Like there are some days like Kamar or Akrab and like, so like some days are better than others to have the Nikah. My question is, does Islam have any recommendations regarding the, the location? Because recently there has been a trend that people go to holy places like Qom, Najaf, Karbala to have their nikah ceremonies. I was thinking whether should I give a bland answer or just be politically correct here. Uh, <coughs> No, there is no location issue at all. We have in the secular world the idea of destination marriages. So we have Islamized that, <laughs> and this is what it is. And I don't need to, I'm not, don't mean to say that, you know, there is no barakat in, in Najaf and Karbala. Uh, but the issue of, remember, the, the barakat is not tied to a place. There are marriages which could happen in the holy places and they would not survive. There are, you know, uh, marriages which will take place here in Toronto and will survive till the end. So there is no recommendation as such. It's on people's own, you know, uh, wish and desire and there's nothing wrong with it. But there is no religious, you know, uh, recommendation about it. In the past, people didn't do this. They just used to, you know, do the marriage in, in their own areas. Now it's becoming more affordable and time-wise it's, it's fast to travel these days and therefore some people choose that. That's their own choice. But there's no religious recommendation about it. All right, thank you for that. So now we're just going to move on to the next topic and theme, uh, which is going to be celebration and commem commemoration rituals. Um, so, again, in the groups that you are in, you're just going to talk about the religious and the cultural aspect of it. Just to kind of get the discussion started, just a couple of things you can think about is, is the actual act of matam religious or cultural? How do the imams do matam versus how do we do it in different styles today? Another possible thing to think about is how can believers gain spir spirituality from milads and partake in the celebration without only considering what the tabarok is or what we'll be wearing for that event? But you're not limited to that, so obviously, whatever um, ideas you may have, uh, discuss that in your group and write that down. And we're just going to take another five minutes, and then we'll discuss.
your thoughts are for this topic. So if we can just give all our attention to the girls side, they're just going to start first with their thoughts on this topic. I really appreciate you. No, no dime. I have no idea what they wrote. <laughs> Um, so for celebration, we said um, in terms of Kushali, I think um, this more is in the ladies' side. It's kind of like you take so long to get ready, and then you come to mosque, everyone's talking, staring at each other. So you can never listen to um, what the lecturer is saying. So we thought that the whole point of us coming to mosque is to learn something. So maybe we could have something more interactive or interesting, because it's also like, um, it's also we're coming to celebrate, you know, Prophet's birthday or like Imam's. Um, and then in terms of like, uh, um, like commemoration, we said like Zanjir is cultural, for example. And then we said in terms of religion, I guess like grieving and like tears and yeah. Does anybody else have anything to add that they discussed that the group did not mention? So there's also um, like specific foods for specific like guladats. So for Hazrat Abbas, there has to be like ladu. <laughs> And yeah. How about on the guy's side? So um, one thing that we thought about in terms of celebration and commemoration is that there might exist a actual misconception that sometimes we can partake in these celebrations and these commemorations and in and of itself that will take us to heaven. 
without, for example, following the wajibat. It's become an, an antidote or a replacement for what we have to do. And I think that's just something we wanted to bring up. Um, there, there, there's value in doing these commemorations and these celebrations. And we have to realize when and where and how to apply them. But don't forget about the wajibat. Don't forget about what we really have to do. Thank you. Anything else to add on the guy side? There's a couple of things which we would like to add is uh, the practice of Khandak, which is in Pakistan and India. I think uh, we, we decided that that was a cultural practice. And uh, another practice over here which we do is the language switch. Well, as the majority of the, of the lecture is in English, and then when the Masaib comes in, we switch over to Urdu, and that's uh, probably because of the, the cultural aspect. In fact, like religiously, the Masaib can be said in any language. And another thing which was a bit uh, distinct from like commemoration and celebration was like depicting the pictures of Masumin, for example, the, uh, the series on Prophet Yusuf. Religiously, we are told that you know we should not uh, draw the pictures, or we should not like you know make draw the paintings of like imams and uh, Ahlul Bayt and the prophets. However, in Iran and Iraq, when you go for ziyara, we see pictures of Imam Ali, Imam Hussein, Hazrat Abbas. So maybe that's from a cultural perspective, because in other areas, like in South Asia, uh, it's highly censored, and we are not allowed to like look at those pictures. Thank you. And anything else from the growth side to add? No? Okay, we're just going to give it to Malan to provide his input. When we talk about the <coughs> celebrations and commemorations, uh, <coughs> it's really difficult to use one standard and one rule, you know, how, how you apply for all the khushalis. Um, you know, sometimes celebrations are just there to make us as a community, the, uh, the grown-ups as well as the children, feel that, okay, it's a special day. You know, and, and so celebration has to be part of it, to feel good about it. And yes, dressing up would be part of it. Uh, having good food would be another part of it. These are all cultural things, but the point is that when we talk about celebrating the events about the Prophet and the family, is to feel, feel good about them. And one of the ways is, you know, you don't just go and sit down and recite two rakat namaz, for example. That's good, but you know, you have to have some um, manifestation of that as a community, and that's what we do, whether it is decoding the center during those occasions. These are nothing religious, they're all cultural things, but best on the religious instructions that we should celebrate the happiness of the Ahlul Bayt, or commemorate the sad events of the... So in, by extension, you can say it's religious, but the way it is done, again, would be culture. In one place, it's done in one way, um, you know, Laddu and Hazrat Abbas, maybe the cultural thing among the Khojas. You go to uh, Iranians, they would have a special ash for, you know, Nazareth Hazrat Abbas, for example. You know, so, so it's all cultural things. Uh, 
But again, going back to the uh, manifestation of religious things in cultural form, and that is where you will see the diversity. And we, we shouldn't be afraid of that. You know, it, it, it is fine as long as, uh, from the Sharia point of view, there is no problem there. It is okay. Let people feel good about it. Yes, Khushalis, uh, especially from the ladies' side, I'm told, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, chit-chat going on, especially in Khushalis. Everybody has come up, uh, you know, with their... Uh, special clothing and everything, so they don't listen to the to the lecture. Um, interaction, you know, when you have such a large gathering, and where the mood is more to have um, celebration rather than a kind of a academic or intellectual discussion on an issue, you know, you can't really have an interactive session. There, there is a place for it. You can't have it in every gathering. Yes, sometimes we use this kahoot just to, you know, make sure people are focusing and, you know, uh, following what's going on. Uh, so you can do things like that, but you cannot really have a, a fully interactive session when it is a celebration as, as such. <clears throat> when it comes to the... Uh, Majalis or the Khushali, um, uh, the, the commemoration, not the Khushali. Uh, yes, the Azadari itself, this process of mourning and grieving for the Shahada, especially Shahada of Karbala, is a religious part of our teaching. All the Shias across the board, uh, with the diversified, you know, cultural, ethnic, and linguistic background, all of them do Azadari. And this is where we come to know that this is a, a religious part of uh, what, the, what we do. How it's done, again, culture comes in. You know, the brother who talked about the issue of language, um, that we, most of the lecture, lecture is in English here in this center, and the Ram part, Masaib, uh, is in Urdu. Uh, these are the cultural things which evolve with the community. When I came to Canada in 1983, in Vancouver, I was asked to recite only 10 minutes in English. The rest of the speech was all in Urdu. Now, things have changed. 80 to 90% is in English, 10% at the end is, because remember, this is, I think, the young people like you have to realize, you have seniors sitting at the back who are still not that comfort, comfortable when it comes to religious ceremonies to listen to things in English. Not that they don't understand. So there is this feeling that they also, you know, would like to uh, feel the Azadari, the way it was done back, whether it's in India, Pakistan, or East Africa. So I think we have to accommodate all, you know, ages here. And this is what we do. We try to, you know, um, Major part of the lecture is in English, but then Masai, you know, uh, is done in Urdu, and from a year or so, you see, we also put the translation, which we had to work on it ahead of time, so it can be put in, so even those who don't understand Urdu will be able to follow. And so we have to look at the demographics, you know, you have the seniors, a very large group, 
We have to respect them and we have to accommodate them. If they can sit there for you, for 90% of the speech, not being that comfortable with English, you should be able to tolerate that 10 minutes. You know, although you, and you're getting the translation now. You know, so this is where we see that, you know, the, the cultural changes come in, but the cultural changes cannot just take place all of a sudden. It takes its own gradual, you know, process. <clears throat> as far as the issue of uh, pictures of the images of the prophets and the imams, well, religiously there is a problem with that. Even though in Iran they would do it, in Iran, Iraq they do it, um, you know, some of the mushtahideen are very clear about it, don't do it. Others say that if, if it ends up insulting the personalities, don't do it. I remember in the 70s in Iran, um, most of the pictures they would have of Amir al-Mu'mineen would be of this muscle man, you know. You look at it and you say, come on. That, that, is, not, <laughs> that is not the image of... You know, in Iran, they have something known as Zurkhane, where they do the exercise for bodybuilding and things like that. You know, there they will have a big picture, and they'll say, this is Amir al-Mu'mineen. You know, uh, so sometimes those images create problems, uh, and, and that's why in the, in the broader Muslim world, even if you look at, for example, uh, Maryam Muqaddas, the, the movie made in Iran about Baby Maryam. In the Farsi version, they still show the face of Prophet Zachariah. He's a prophet. But you look at the dubbing of that in Arabic done in Lebanon, you will see they have put a halo on his face. They don't show his... Because in the Arab society, that would be considered to be a problem. So when they dub it into Arabic, you know, they, they put a halo on the face of uh, Prophet Zachariah. So, again, it's, it's probably more a cultural thing among Iranians and Iraqis. Uh, I think we are more on a religious ground, we are more solid by refraining from doing that. <clears throat> Last thing, what about Zanjir and Qama? Um, Azandari by itself, as I said, is a religious issue. But the way it is done, these are all evolving methods in different cultures. People do it in different ways. Um, and everything has to come in within the bounds of the Sharia. And for that, the only people who can actually tell us whether it is within the Sharia or not are the Mushtahideen. So even in the issue of Zanjir and Qama, you have to refer to your Marja and see what he says. And then either you will follow it, or do it or not do it especially when it comes to the implications of doing certain things publicly, if it's going to create negative image for Muslims in the other societies, then we have to definitely refrain from it because it is not wajib. It is just one way of expressing azadari, which you can do in, in different ways. Thank you so much for that. Um, I just want to open the floor up to any questions that anyone has on that topic or on the brother side or the sister side. Hello? Okay, we have a question here. Um, when the Prophet came to Medina, um, the people celebrated him with music and instruments. Why then are music and instruments haram nowadays?
Well, there is a, there is a debate among the, the scholars about the use of uh, instruments. The only thing which some allow is actually what is known as duff, which is the drum. Uh, and, and so that is where, you know, what the people did in Medina, we just have to see whether this was repeated again or not. Certain things might have been done during the early days, but what happened later on? Was it continued or not? And that was the, would be the main thing. And so when we look at the seerah of the Prophet, we have to look at the entire seerah from the beginning to the end to see things were continued. And what did the Imams who came later on say of that? Um, normally the, the answer would be that the music which is, not uh, which is not entertainment would be permissible, but if it is entertainment, that is where the problem starts. And it's not only music, even when we talk about ghina, which is actually um, the, the singing. Even if the singing reaches to a point where subconsciously it controls you, in a sense, you start moving your head without realizing, or your big toes start going up and down. Uh, that is the sign that this is the haram ghina, even if it is a recitation of the Quran done in that way. And so we realize there is a ghina and then there is a musiqi. So this song part of it, which is problematic, and then there is the use of um, instruments. So sometimes, yes, we, we see, um, of course, if you have it in background, you're looking at a documentary, for example, so you're not really watching a musical program. The music is in the background, that's fine. Um, whether it's a movie or a documentary or even news, you know, if, if the commercials are coming on, you don't have to switch off the TV. Uh, no, it, it, you're not really sitting there to listen to that music as such. But if it's a musical prob uh, you know, program, then that's, that's where the problem starts. You know, sometimes people say, oh, Qawwali, you know, they talk about the fazail of Imam Ali. You know, we haven't seen in the 250 years of the seerah of the Masumin from Rasulullah to the Ghaybat al-Sughra, where our Imams celebrated this in this way. You know, so we, we have to be, you know, careful about it. And remember, there are things which are done in certain Shia, you know, societies around the world, but it doesn't mean whatever anything else is doing somewhere outside is necessarily always kosher and okay. No, there are many problems in different parts of the Shia societies also. Thank you for that. And was there any other question? There's one on the brother's side. Asalaamu Alaikum. Um, I recently got to know, I am not sure if this is a new cultural theme that's coming forward. Um, people that have saved up money to do the Azal Imam Hussain, like Majalis is at their house. Um, the new kind of theme that I recently got to know about is that what they're doing, instead of doing the Azal Imam Hussain or the Majalis is at home, they're donating that money to a charity or somebody in need. Is that true or, or is that not true? And if it is, then what is your take on that? 
so they so some people are gathering money you, as you said for azadari but then they're using it for charitable purpose for charity well um i think they are confusing two things if they really want to do charity they should then save money for charity um you can't save money for one purpose and then end up doing something else charity is good azadari also is good it's up to you if you want to uh, so it's not that one thing is going uh, for something else so this is where where we in, get into these conflicts there is an individual who actually did a very rough survey of uh, shia community here in toronto especially our community came up with numbers he said you know the amount of uh, time and money we spend in the ten, 12 days of muharram they said you know one hour before majlis we had to get ready come to the center spend there let's say 2 hours and then go back home so 4 hours this is you calculate how many people come in and put off the numbers there and see what was the minimum uh, minimum wage for per, per hour and you put a dollar figure there and he said you know if we gather this much money we will be educating 5 to 10 doctors every year my my point is that if you really want to gather money for you know promoting higher education do that don't say we'll close this and do that because i assure you not a single cent which was used for azadari will go to education if you close that and do that there are two different things people sometimes you know just confuse one with the other if you want to do charity work that is good thing if you want to do azadari that's good thing have your needs very clear about it and just follow that yeah, we're just going to go with one more question if there's any question the brother or sister side can we do two more questions we'll do two more questions <laughs> okay both from the lady side we're reserving them so we have on kushalis people come to mosque in respect of masumin's birthdays instead of listening to lectures and kawalis for the length of the night why do we do this when we can host festive activities instead as it is more engaging and fun would this not be a better alternative than just sitting for hours so that people are more excited to come celebrate the important people of islam can you be more specific I think what the question is asking is instead of doing majlises and sitting and listening to lectures why aren't we doing festive activities only so that people are more engaged and excited to attend to celebrate the masumin I think we we sometimes don't appreciate the uh system that we have in the Shia world across the cultural divide you know all communities do that where they have uh, viladats and um, you know they do this celebration as well as the lecture you know you have the nasheed or qasida and things like that which is part of the celebration your good food at the end is part of the celebration 
depending on the weather we have in Canada, half of the year is all snow anyway. You know, depending on, on, you know, we can do things outside also sometimes. Uh, there is talks about, you know, making, having, having a uh, firework, you know, uh, for 15 Shaban. Again, you'll get a lot of complaints. You're use, wasting the money. That's another thing there. But, you know, there are things which can be done, but not in the sense that we totally eliminate the, the process of uh, lectures. You know, this is, this is one means, whether people like or not, they still show up, they listen, willingly or unwillingly. This is a means of mass education which other communities don't have. Because we grow up in that, we don't really appreciate the, the worth and value of that. You know, you look at other communities, you know, um, look at the Christians. They do this celebration, of Christmas, how much they learn, learn about Isa ibn Maryam? What is the attendance in the church? Christmas has become more a commercial issue than a religious uh, festival. And so sometimes we, we, you know, do not really appreciate what we have. Yes, we can make things more, uh, for example, three khushalis we have in Shaban. I've been trying for the last few years, at least one of those which falls on the weekend, make it the night of poetry. And, you know, uh, give the, the room for our young people to come with their own, you know, in English, uh, Qasida. So we can, we can change things, uh, but not at the expenses of totally, you know, uh, eliminating. Otherwise, it will just become celebration without any what we call spirituality. That's one of the issues which are coming up. People come and go, but there's no uh, spiritual food. So we need the good niyaz at the end, but we also need a, a good niyaz for the mind also. Then we have one more question, right? Wait, okay. Um, so I have a question about what classifies as music and what makes it like a nasheed? Because there are like nasheeds that like are like vocals only or they use like drums and stuff like, but it's like all about like religion, like it's like about religion and all that stuff. Like what would you say is a nasheed that, that's allowed or like what is like music? Like what would... Most of the nasheed would be okay, but even there, there is a problem. It's difficult for me to give a criteria. Sometimes we get requests from the marriage parties that they, they would like this nasheed uh, to be used when the bride is coming in. Uh, you know, we actually go through it. Many times I personally listen to all that before I say, okay, this is okay or not. And sometimes you'll see it's just music and nothing else. Maybe name, you know, Allah and Muhammad here and there. But it's more music there. And so we have to be careful about these issues, you know. Uh, and it's not only the Arabic nasheed. Unfortunately, uh, some of the Urdu, uh, you know, reciters are also uh, going into... Uh, the tunes and the styles, which is not really appropriate. You know, Urdu language has itself evolved into the Qasida system. It's a very 
different. It's a beautiful recitation, but very different from the, the songs and the movies. And, and this is where, you know, we have to be careful about. So I wouldn't say all nasheeds are okay or all, all of them are wrong. I think we will look at nasheed one by one before we say yes or not. All right, so we're just going to move on to the next. Okay, we have one more question, but we'll go with it. Yeah, go ahead. Cool. Uh, the, uh, the issue that uh, it exists around uh, is Cheshmaham uh, Cheshmi. Uh, families uh, see other families uh, getting their uh, kids uh, married and everything like that, and they want to be better than them. They want to give more gifts, better gifts, more expensive gifts. Um, what is uh, the actual, um, the middle here, which is good to practice, actually? Thank you. You are talking about the family giving to their own boy or girl at the time of marriage? Uh, yes. Uh, or You are talking about the dowry or the the dowry one, yes the dowry from one point of view and then the amount of uh, suitable gifts that yeah, is okay. well the the criteria that Islam would have is number one it should be within your means don't go beyond your means and uh, I think moderation should be the the form there you know you don't have to be very stringy at that time. It is a marriage ceremony anyway. You know, um, but don't even be extravagant in a sense that you go beyond your means and put yourself or your family into difficulty. Looking at what others have done, you don't have to see, you know, what others are, are doing. This, this is a problem. Uh, oh, so and so did it in this way. We want to make it even better than that. There's nothing like that. You just look at your own ability and do it within your means. Thank you for that. So just in the interest of time, we're just going to go on to the other themes that we have left as we've gotten a great discussion out of this um, today. Um, so the next topic that we're going to talk about is hijab. Um, so the culture and religious aspects of it. Uh, just some things that you can start thinking about um, is, is it appropriate to criticize or give feedback on a woman's hijab uh, by saying your outfit is not hijabi? Or is that meant to be a woman's struggle between herself and God? Um, some other things are that Islam says that people should adapt to the culture of the area they live in as long as it does not interfere with Islam's rules. Therefore, is it appropriate for women to wear an abba or niqab or for men to wear shalwar kameez in the daily life in Canada as it is not part of the Canadian culture? And is it better for someone to wear hijab in a way that it isn't perfect, which means that some hair is showing, or for them to not wear it at all? So just some things to think about. So in the groups that you're in already, just um, have, discuss your ideas for the next five minutes, and then we'll present again as a group. Um, the brothers' opinion on this first and what their thoughts were, and then we'll move on to the sisters. So we talked about a couple of things. <clears throat> um, how different cultures have different um, like types of hijab, or some have like very like a lot of hijab, like niqabs and gloves and socks and everything, whereas others have 
like less covering at least. Um, and then for religion, like what's the minimum requirement at least for covering for men and for women for hijab? And then like what's the meaning behind hijab, like the purpose for it? And what are some other ways we can show haya in our life? Um, as in like physical hijab, but then also social hijab, like our interactions. And then there's also within the family, even between non-mahram family members, such as cousins, there's like a bit of like a lack of, you could say hijab, or like, hey, like, you know, like that kind of interaction can be a little much, like cousin confusion. Um, and then there's often we find in our cultures a double, a bit of a double standard, like for men versus women for hijab. And then um, to what extent should, for example, a husband encourage or like make their wife wear hijab like versus like to what extent should we go or is it like a choice they should make like the woman should make herself or should it be something that the husband should tell the wife to do because it is like wajib or like you know that's kind of what we spoke about yeah uh, we discussed the fact that uh, when we talk about hijab most of the time it goes straight to the women wearing hijab we never discuss how important it is for us to talk about men wearing hijab, you know? And uh, also the fact that in Quran, it's mentioned hijab of men first, and then right after about the women. So I feel like we neglect that fact. And then uh, we also talked about the, uh, the way that the, the hijab is now infused into the Western culture as well, where people uh, have a different version of their hijab in, in Western society. It's not the same as if you were in, in the you know, Middle East or in East Africa or whatever else. Or like even big brands like Nike have their own uh, the Nike hijab, the one that you wear when you bring sports and stuff like that. And uh, also we discussed that uh, in other countries where they're not really fond of the hijab, so now they have some niqab ban or something like that. So that's what we talked about. And do the sisters want to add anything to that? Um, so we said in religion uh, for hijab and like criticism or just like talking about it, it's like it falls under Amr bil Ma'roof where we have to at least do like the basic responsibility and like make somebody wear like for example their hair is showing or something. And then, um, oh and yeah, and then uh, for cultural, we said that hijab is more physical, whereas in religion, we focus a lot on like the spiritual aspect of it. And yeah, and just like social hijab and, and stuff. I think I also heard some discussion on how hijab, like how women started wearing hijab, like whether their family presented to them as a choice or whether it was like, okay, you're turning nine, this is your responsibility now. So that was also interesting. 
And anything else to add? No? So yeah, so we're just gonna give it to Molina to provide his input. First of all, uh, let me st start by saying <clears throat> that when we talk about the hijab, you have to realize that this is basically part of the, um, you know, the teachings that we have in the Quran. If you look at Surah Nur and Surah Ahzab, if you put the two ayats relevant to this issue of hijab uh, together, you get the complete form of uh, hijab. But remember always that Islam is not only Quran. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be able to do the daily prayers. Islam is Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet, as explained by the Ahlul Bayt. Only when you take two together, because these days, you know, there are some Muslims who say, "Oh, show it to me in the Quran." Uh, of course, we have the entire requirements of hijab is there in the Quran, but always keep in mind that it's not only the Quran, the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet with the teachings of the Ahlul Bayt. The, the issue uh, was about the minimum hijab versus extra. Um, when we talk about the minimum hijab, we are talking about covering, uh, as far as the ladies are concerned, covering in the clothing which will conceal their body and the shape of the body um, in such a way that other than the face and the hands are uh, covered. So that is the minimum requirement as far as hijab is concerned. Beyond that, when you talk about niqab, you know, face uh, covering, these are not essentially wajib. There might be situations where it might become wajib, um, so, but the, so that's the difference between minimum and the uh, extra hijab that we talk about. Now, the cultural issue that the, one of the brothers talked about, uh, that there is a confusion in between uh, family members. Yes, there is a lot of uh, problems. People consider their cousins should be uh, cousins to be like siblings um, or those who are related in the family. Uh, we have to realize that when it comes to the issue of mahram and non-mahram, the list is not that large. So cousins are not mahram. They are non-mahram. Once they become baligh, you know, they have to maintain the issue of hijab and decency uh, at both levels. <clears throat> Even when we talk about uh, brother-in-law or sister-in-law, uh, there also the, the issue of uh, hijab is, is necessary. Uh, sometimes people say, oh, Maulana, she's my, like my sister. Well, she's like your sister, but not your sister. And this is where you have to realize that, you know, Islamic laws are not there just to be played around and say, oh, she's like my sister. No. Uh, th th these things are very, very clear. I think uh, when you go to Madrasa, you hear uh, the list. And so that has to be, you know, there should be more education about it. Um, whether it is the husband's responsibility or not, 
this is tied in with the question from the sisters about uh, whether you should point out to a lady whose uh, hijab is not uh, proper, whether, you know, they have to fix it or make it uh, better. Uh, this all, whether it is the uh, friends in the community or especially when we talk about family members, it falls under the issue of Amr bil Maruf and Nahil Munkar. Of course, for the husband, the duty becomes even more heavier in a way. Uh, of course, these things cannot be forced. You can, you have to use um, the proper methods of Amr bil Maruf and Nahil Munkar. Um, Unfortunately, in the Western society, we are not only forgetting Amr bil Maruf and Nahir in Munkar, the society is becoming such that they would say, mind your own business. Even our volunteers, if they see a child, you know, doing mischief in the program, and they would say, sit down, you know, the parent will say, who gave you the right to say that to my child? You know, that kind of attitude is coming up. So there's no sense of Amr bil Maruf and Nahil al-Munkar anymore. And I think we have to realize that this is considered to be the first duty as members of a community. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Tawbah says, Al-Mu'minun wal-Mu'minat ba'avuhum awliya'u ba'az. They are friends of one another in the community. What do they do? He doesn't talk about namaz first. He says, يَعْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَيَنْحَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ And then he says, وَيُقِيمُونَ الصَّلَاةِ Amr bil Maruf and Nahil Munkar becomes the first duty as members of the same community. And so that has to be exercised at all different levels. But of course, you have to be, you know, um, polite. You shouldn't be putting people off. Uh, and you should see whether your words will have any impact or not, and then uh, you should, uh, you know, talk about it. This ties in with this issue of, is it better to wear full hijab or not at all? Well, you know, there is something known as be hijabi and bad hijabi. Do you know the difference between that? Be hijabi means not wearing hijab at all. Bad hijabi means bad hijab. Sometimes, you know, Mickey Mouse style, convertible, when the Quran is recited, it comes up, dupatta. When the Quran ends, it goes down there. You know, these are all bad hijabi. But if somebody has a hijab which is not complete, at least they have that much. There is a hope that maybe one day she will come to realize, you know, so we shouldn't be putting them down, you know, there is a way of doing Abar al Maruf, and this is what uh, we have to keep in mind. <clears throat> Starting at what age? Well, when they become Baliga, but this is something which has to be talked about before, they have to be introduced to it gradually, so that by the age they reach to, uh, you know, the age of Bulugh, they would be in there. You can't just say, oh, one day, today is your ninth birthday and you had to be put on the hijab all of a sudden like that. No. Uh, this, this is the issue of tarbiyat. Um, 
different formats of uh, hijab. Um, of course, this problem of men and women, uh, the hijab for men is the issue of, which is common to men and women, is the issue of eyes. And, and that is something very important when we talk about haya, when we talk about modesty. This is unfortunately, again, one of the values which is not being appreciated. We think this hijab just means the clothing and the physical aspect of it. No, hijab also means the mode of interaction, how we interact with one another. Even the issue of eyes is very important there, the glances. And this is where, you know, the issue for men and women is equal. Um, Nike hijab, no, these are all commercials. You know, if you see, I actually brought it up a few years ago. We had this medley where I even showed the screen when Nike hijab for the sportswear came up. You know, if you have this, it's not even um, trousers. It was actually what they call uh, leggings is actually showing the entire, you know, shape of the, uh, the leg. And just because covering that, that's not hijab. Hijab doesn't mean, you know, to cover the body and let the sh shape be revealed. And this is where we have to realize, you know, uh, there are commercials out there and they use, they say, oh, this is, this is okay then. No, uh, there are certain rules and regulations about what does hijab mean. It's not only the covering, but covering in such a way that the contours and shape of the body is not revealed. Uh, and so uh, I think when we talk about the cultural part of it, the cultural aspect of hijab will have its own diversity and cultural element as long as they fulfill the requirements of the Islamic laws about hijab. Let me end, uh, there was no question about it. But, you know, uh, Quran talks about hijab in Surah Nur and Surah, uh, Surah Ahzab. And in Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the women, when they reach to the old age, you know, then the rules of hijab are relaxed for them. You know, they can, for, for example, their head covering, if it's halfway, there's no problem or their sleeves, you know, come up. You know, at that age, the rules of hijab are still there, but in a more relaxed manner. In Muslim societies, what do we see? Just look at this, uh, go on the street, you will see, you know, the old lady is in full hijab, and the young daughters walking with her has no hijab at all. Whereas Islam says when you become old, you know, rules are relaxed for you. The young one is the one who is to put on the hijab. And this is where we have to realize how far we have moved away from the ideals and the teachings of the Quran. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us on this matter, inshallah. So the floor is open for any questions pertaining to hijab, if either the brothers or sisters have a question. Sister has a question. Um, okay, so if a girl doesn't start wearing hijab at the age of nine, is that a sin? 
Well, when hijab becomes wajib and she doesn't wear it, yes, it is a sin. It's just like, you know, if she doesn't do the namaz, that would be a sin also. Yeah. Just to follow up, um, with boys, there's always that range where they become balig. Why is it with girls that there's a specific age? Like some girls can be at different levels of maturity, etc. To make it very simple, I can say that the, the boys are slow <laughs> as far as maturing is concerned. But it's, it's more to do with the issue of, um, you know, the normal standard of physical maturity. And according to the ahadith of the Masumin, uh, the majority opinion is that age nine is the, is the age. Um, there are some ulama who have given some opinions which are different, uh, but that is the majority, and especially those who are really considered to be very well versed in this uh, field, uh, they say it's age nine. And so that's where we come with that uh, number. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I, I've been to like some uh, Afghan and uh, Lebanese like events and I noticed that they don't have a partition. So is the partition um, a cultural thing or a religious thing? Well, it's, it's good this, you asked me this question because I was asked this privately also. But um, see, the, the Muslim Shia communities have come to the West. Some of them either were more westernized in their own places. Lebanon was considered to be the most westernized part of the Middle East because of their influence with uh, the French culture and the exposure to the Christians there. And so when they come here, for them, things are very much like they were there. When it comes to the Afghan, that is a different situation. Afghan society is very conservative. There are certain, I don't want to name the centers, which are run without any religious guidance. There is an EC which runs the center. There is no kind of expert on Islamic laws. They decide on their own. It's just like some of the centers I know in US, in, in Sunni centers I'm talking about, where they even would have a, you know, voting uh, on general body. Uh, should we order food from McDonald's or not? And the majority said yes, and they went with it. And so I think we have to look at certain issues. Um, I know some of the stories, some of the reasons behind it. But what we are doing is according to the concept of haya, and this is the norm. Whether you go to the uh, religious places, and, and this is and, and unless there is an interaction between the audience themselves on issues in a serious and formal manner, 
you know, if we can have segregation, that is the best thing to do. So if you look at the guidelines that I have in the, um, it's actually available if you go to Jaffrey website, under the section on resources, uh, it says Al-Furqan newsletter. Under that you will see there's entire, you know, four or five different scenarios. In some places, partition would be there. In some places, partition would not be there. And so just because other centers do that, it doesn't mean that what we are doing is just cultural. You know, this, we are more close to the values of haya and modesty uh, rather than them, if I may use that term. In a minority on this issue, and I don't mind, I know people call me different things, but you know, this is, this is the reality. If you look at, especially if you go and look at that uh, uh, paper that I have uh, you know, referred to at, in uh, resources under Al-Furqan newsletter, that was a paper which was adapted by the World Federation about 15 years ago as a guideline for the communities. Okay. I have a question. Um, so I guess my question is, why isn't hijab the exact same for men as it is for women? So in the sense of physical hijab, nowadays I feel like men have more beauty products and they can do different hairstyles for their hair. So why can't they cover, or why shouldn't they cover their hair as well? And then in hijab of the voice, like women's voices are beautiful, so we say that we need to maintain our hijab so we don't recite in front of men. But in the same way, men's voices can be beautiful. So why are men allowed to recite in front of women? Well, I think the, the hijab is not only the issue of being beautiful or not. Uh, you know, we don't go with that criteria. Oh, you are beautiful, so hijab is wajib on you, and you are not so beautiful, so maybe half of the hijab would be wajib on you. No, there's nothing like that. Uh, you know, it, it is more to do, uh, you know, uh, with the issue of modesty and decency that we talk about. Even the men in Muslim culture, this, this is where we have to realize, you know, sometimes we get this stereotype from others. That, oh, women have to be fully dressed up and men, no. If you, if you go to the Arab society, for example, what do the men wear? They have this long robe, you know, uh, full sleeves, and they also put something on their, on, their, on their head, which is not in a wajib form for them to cover their head, but it is there. You know, so, so the, when it comes to the even covering for the men, it is there, not on that level of wajib, um, but you know, whether people's, uh, the, the men, uh, you know, uh, hair and the hairstyle is more beautiful than other. This has been there from day one. It's nothing to do with the beauty of one or the other. It is more to issue of, you know, uh, maintaining modesty and uh, decency. <clears throat> So when you said the older people have uh, relaxed um, standards, 
uh, I, I thought that was because they were less beautiful, or is that how all uh, all women? <laughs> what? All women. Old women. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, the, so the old is, men still have to maintain the hijab. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is the reasoning behind that? It's just, it's just that you know, um, with that age, they can, if they, if they, you know, it's not all, always easy to maintain. Uh, let's say dupatta or the scarf that they have, and that that should be okay. It's more a relaxation that Islam has given to for them. Yeah. And of course, with that age, the issue of temptation has gone down. Yes, that is that that is an, one element there. Yeah. Can you also touch on the voice, like why women have to? I guess, preserve the hijab of the voice, but men are allowed to recite in front of women? Uh, the men are? So men in programs are allowed to recite in front of, uh, like, with women hearing their voice when they're reciting Quran or when they're reciting Munajats or whatever, um, but women are not allowed to do that? And what is the difference between the voices or why? Yeah, the, the, the issue of uh, the voice of the women if it is just a normal voice you know a speech given by a lady uh, or even recitation of the quran in a simple form or even the translation the way it's, it was done here that wouldn't be an issue it's, it's only when it becomes to qasida or marcia you know with with a melodious you know tune or uh, voice that is where it becomes um, the issue of aura, as we call, uh, we, we call it in, in fiqh. Uh, and this is where a man who is not mahram to that woman is not allowed to uh, listen to that. Now, as far as the men are concerned, you know, um, whether it has that attraction, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. Um, but yeah, women are allowed to listen to the qasida by the men. Um, but I think it would be, it is it's about the human nature. I think men are more problematic. You know, uh, that's why they have been told to, uh, to refrain. So it's not the women who are being told to refrain, it is the men who have been told, you don't listen. Any more questions on the brother's side? Yeah. So I was interested in the concept of uh, abaya. Is that a cultural thing or is that a religious thing? And my second question would be: Can you shed some light on the proper hijab for brothers? Like, I know everyone talks about like hijab for brothers, but even in this session, we are focused mainly on hijab for sisters. Well, as far as the abaya is concerned, again, it's one manifestation of what is known as hijab or the proper uh, covering, and that is the Arab style of doing it. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, that way. Uh, it makes it easy, maybe, uh, but it is not the only way of uh, fulfilling the requirements of hijab. <clears throat> And so let me add here to the question I had seen earlier, uh, I think online questions which had come probably from before, uh, is about uh, women wearing uh, aba or niqab or 
shalwar kameez in daily life in Canada, uh, as it is not part of the Canadian culture. Again, the, the issue is that Islam does not have a preference for one cultural you know, clothing versus another. It is a choice given to the individuals to exercise their own choice culturally as long as it fulfills the requirements of hijab. Um, and so, you know, if a Pakistani man or woman, for example, decide to wear their own kameez uh, and shalwar in Canada, um, it's their choice whether they should abandon that in Canada. Well, Canada is a multicultural society. Canada prides itself in being multicultural. So, you know, even from the Canadian point of view, it is something which uh, shouldn't be a, a problem. The main thing is, you know, be proud for what you are. Um, you know, others are, I don't know why we should shy away from our own, um, not only values, but even our ways of uh, doing things. Now, when, we when it comes to the hijab for men, I think, again, the same issue would come up. Um, there is a minimum, and then there is a maximum we are talking about. The minimum would be that, you know, let's say if they are at home uh, with their own family, uh, to, for them, technically speaking, to cover from navel to the just above the knees would be sufficient. But that's, that's just the minimum. If you want to do namaz in that way, you can do it. But you can't come and say, I'll come in the masjid in that way. <laughs> you know, there, there are certain etiquettes and, you know, rules and regulation about when you go outside. And, and, and one of the things would be that you, you need to uh, formally dress. Uh, style doesn't matter. Again, the same things will come up, uh, especially when it comes to the Navel to the just above the knees, it shouldn't be that tight, and that's a problem with the men these days. Um, you know, so that they have to be careful about that aspect also as far as the clothing hijab of the men uh, is concerned. So, one more question from the sister side. Is a non-mahram allowed to see the pictures of a woman that are of when she was a child before Bulugh? Yes, that would be okay. Because the picture is from a child who was not baligh at that time. Yeah. Thank you for that. So we're just going to move on to our last topic of the night. Uh, I'm just going to get Sister Amna to introduce um, the topic. So, instead of doing um, gender roles and parent and child relationships separate, we've decided to combine it for the sake of time into family life. So that can be family life when you're a couple in marriage, so that can kind of touch on the gender roles, and also family life in your, I guess, family where you were a child and your parent was a parent, if that makes sense. Um, so to touch on both aspects or both topics in one. So family life. And this is the last topic of the night, so if you haven't had a chance to participate yet, do uh, take this chance to participate and let your voice be heard. So we're just going to take five minutes to discuss within the group, and then we're going to open up for discussion and then uh, conclude from there. So we're just going to start off with uh, the brother side.
If I can get just get everyone, everyone's attention with a loud salawat. Allah. Okay, so we're just going to start discussion on the brother's side here. Um, so in terms of the theme that we have, what were your thoughts? So uh, we talked about lots of things, but uh, in general, we talked about uh, male having the uh, role of being the breadwinner normally. Um, obviously, in the Western uh, countries, it's, it's not the same. Uh, females also contribute just as much. Obviously, even in other countries, they contribute as much, but the expectation of having the, the women going out to work is different in different countries. Uh, and also we talked about the uh, location being a huge, like the location of where the family is being a huge factor in how they, uh, the children are up, uh, brought up. Uh, you know, similarly, uh, what is the, uh, uh, if, the, if the male is, is working and the female is working, right? What is the necessity, like is, is the male the only one who's providing, and then the female who's also providing, is it the necessity for her to use her money for the family, or is that not a necessity, but she does it out of, you know, a love for the family? And uh, what else did we talk about? <laughs> Another thing we touched upon was the concept of, like new concepts, concepts being introduced in the West about like two moms and two dads. That's like something which is, uh, unheard of in like back home, so that like you know that's a new perspective which we have learned about over here. So like how does Islam you know talk about that? Because the role of the father and mother are like clearly defined, but this is something new for the Shia community. Um, just to add to that, uh, we also talked about like the concept of the male being the breadwinner. Um, and then we also talked about for parents and children, um, like methods of disciplining for the child. So like specific, like using physical means, like hitting your children. Um, so like obviously in Canada, that's not really allowed, but like definitely like in back home, like that was the norm. And to what extent does Islam allow that? And does Islam even allow hitting your children? Like what are the rules about that? And yeah, or like, is it right? Like, yeah. And on the sister side? Um, so we talked about um, how children are raised. I think sometimes in our culture it's like um, the daughter and the son is like brought up in different ways. Like the son is allowed to do, like is more free to do stuff than the daughter is. Um, another thing we talked about was um, was the the three parts, like the ages that there is in bringing up. Like I think age zero to seven, when the child is like the, the king or something, and then your other like two stages. So that's what we talked about, yeah.
anything else to add from either side? Okay, so I'm just going to get Milana to get a chance to. Okay, um, <clears throat> let me begin with this first question about the the role and the uh, <clears throat> the role of husband and wife in the family setting. <clears throat> Islam actually looks at the nature of human being that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has created, and this this is how the uh, roles have been assigned. Actually, Quran talks about it. It's not just history or the hadiths. Uh, which actually talks about this issue that the husband is the one who is the provider. He has to take care of his wife and children <clears throat> from the Islamic point of view. This is not a cultural issue. This is a, an Islamic issue. <clears throat> now... Why is it so? Does it mean that the man has a superior role compared to the woman? No, it's, it's more to uh, do with the issue of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created them and assigned the duties uh, and the roles. Uh, because remember, Islam greatly values the role of motherhood in society. And when a woman goes to that phase of becoming a mother and later on, you know... Um, her role as a mother becomes very crucial as far as the upbringing of the children is, uh, is concerned. And that is where the burden of providing is not put on the wife. It is on the husband. It is he. Now, in the Western society, and it's not only just the Western society, even in the Eastern society, even in, in many situations, you will see women also contribute by working Maybe at home, doing things at home, not necessarily going out. And so it's not only that it's in the West, even in the, in, in, in the East, you know, women also have contributed to the financial well-being of the, of the family. But what Islam says is that when that happens, number one, it's not her duty. So the husband cannot demand that, you know, uh, we have to share the... Uh, financial burden or the expenses equally um, or you bring all the money and give it to me and I will manage it. No, whatever the, the woman earns, it is her property, it is her right to decide what to do. Of course, out of her, um, you know, love for the husband and the family, she contributes and that has to be considered to be as a as a favor that she is making to the husband. If I may become more legal on this issue from the Shari point of view, she can actually say that whatever I'm giving to you is actually a loan. I can ask back whenever I want. Don't get so many ideas. I'm just talking about in theory here, okay? <laughs> but technically that can be done. Um, just, just for the, you know, husband to realize that this is a favor that she's making. Um, not only that, even, even when it comes to the issue of, you know, household chores, it is not religiously a duty on the wife, although Islam, um, you know, doesn't put it as a binding issue or as, as a role at the, as, as that. 
It is the husband who has to care, take care of whatever even is required at home. Uh, but it is out of the nature of the wife, out of her love for herself and the children, that she takes care, she helps the husband as far as the household chores are concerned. But there are no, you know, line cast there on the concrete. You know, they can help one another. Uh, the wife can also work and contribute if she wants. The husband also, whenever, you know, he realizes there is a need, he should also help the wife as far as uh, household chores are concerned. So things are not black and white. That this is what you have to do. This is what you have to do. You don't cross the line. No, they, these are all flexible, you know, uh, areas. For example, once Bibi Fatima went to the Prophet and asked about this issue, and the Prophet said, you know, whatever is outside the home, Ali, it's your responsibility. Whatever is to be done inside the house, Fatima, is your responsibility. Not as a binding form. But then one day, the Prophet comes in, and he saw that, you know, um, Ali and Fatima were both sitting, and they were grinding the wheat. You know, those days you didn't get the flour ready-made. You had to go on, buy the wheat and grind it to make it into flour to make the bread. <coughs> and so although technically it was something which is done inside the home, Ali was there helping his wife. The Prophet comes in. He doesn't say, you know, Oh, Fatima, what are you doing? I told you this is your job, your responsibility. No, he actually asked them, which of the two have been doing this from before? And Ali said, Fatima was doing it, and I just sat down to help her. And so Rasulullah says to Fatima, you get up. And Rasul took her place, and she, he and, and Ali continued grinding the, the wheat. And so these things are not that, you know, black and white in that sense. It all goes back to the principle of, you know, love and compassion towards one another in the family unit. <clears throat> now, coming to other issue, well, Islam says this is husband and wife, but in Canada we hear about two fathers or two mothers and this and that. Well, I think the answer is very clear. Islam doesn't recognize those kinds of, you know, relationships at all. We are going through a difficult phase here, and we have to make sure our children know what is right and what is wrong. Um, and so I, I don't think there is any alternative view as far as Islam is concerned on this issue. The issue of physical discipline can the father or the mother physically punish their children. Even in Canada, the issue of spanking is, is, is an issue where spanking to an extent is allowed legally, but not to the extent where it becomes what is known as physical abuse, child abuse. And in the Eastern societies, the, the parents, mostly the, 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 the fathers, would sometimes really go beyond the limit, even from the Sharia point of view, of uh, very severely, uh, you know, hitting their children. And Islam doesn't allow that, especially when it comes to the children. It allows physical discipline at an age, but not to an extent that is going to leave any marks or bruises on a child. 
Not even a father is allowed to do that, let alone a teacher uh, or others. <clears throat> Especially in Canada, when you know that the, the rules are so stringent and, and you know, strict here, that even if the teacher of the school complains, the Children's Aid Society will come and they will take your children away. Keeping that in mind, I would say that religiously it is forbidden to physically hit your child. Because by doing that, you are actually endangering the children by opening the door for the government to come and take them away from you. <coughs> you might be able to find it out in the court or whatever, but even that few days uh, that they would be away from you, be, it is a very serious traumatic you know, experience that the children would go through. So keeping that in mind, I think even Sharia will say it is forbidden in this environment to raise your hand over your children. Coming to this issue of you know, how the parents uh, raise their children, the, the boys are given more leeway and the girls are not. Well, this is more a cultural issue uh, and it is wrong. Uh, whatever is there as far as strictness or the concern that the parents would have would apply equally to the boys and the girls. It's not that you know you had, you, you had to be more strict towards the girls and let the boys do whatever they want. No, no. When it comes to tarbiyat, it is, it is the uh, equal ground on, on, on that issue. Not only that, even I think when it comes to the uh, upbringing, I think the, the mothers should also train their sons how to be helpful at home by learning to you know, uh, take part in household chores. So when they, when they have their own families, they would know that issue of helping out uh, at home also. <clears throat> so I think this is uh, that's the end of it, I think. Any other question? Yes, we can open up any questions pertaining to this specific topic, if either the brothers or sisters have any questions for this. No? I I can ask a question. Um, so I think one of the things that came up on our registration form was um, sometimes parents, when they're frustrated, they'll tell the child like, oh, you should be thankful to me for giving you a bed and like food and dropping you to school and whatever. So is that appropriate or is it the parent's responsibility to provide those and the children shouldn't have to be thankful to them, etc.? Well, the parents have a duty to provide for the children. But that does not always mean that they bring it up, you know, on their face all the time. Uh, but not the way it was put in the question. That the children, you know, they just assume, well, it's your duty. That's also not a right akhlaq, you know, you realize, yes, parents, uh, uh, doing their uh, hard work, you know, they sacrifice in many ways. So I think on, on one hand, there is no need for the parents to bring this issue up again and again. Um, but the children also should appreciate, especially when we talk about immigrant uh, parents, you know, they, they really go uh, through quite a lot 
in order to make sure that the children here have a good, good life, and that should be appreciated, uh, and it should not be just put down that, oh, this was your duty anyway. Uh, I don't think that's the right way of, uh, you know, dealing with it. Uh, so I think both, both sides need to exercise wisdom and, you know, compassion and love towards one another. And, um, you know, it is the duty of the parents, of course, but the children also should appreciate that. <clears throat> Especially when it comes to the old age. I think uh, we live in a different society, different environment. It's not easy to take care of the old uh, uh, parents, but Islam really, if you look at the Quran, when it talks about the rights of the parents, it has emphasized more about being kind and merciful to the parents when they are old. This is a time when they need us most. And we should really maintain our Islamic and even some cultural values of taking care of the uh, parents when they become old. Um, not the norm that we see here. Uh, I think, uh, you know, this is where I think our cultural would be more preferred uh, in taking care of the old parents uh, than what is known as the Canadian or the Western, you know, lifestyle. <clears throat> Just continuing uh, on the question. So, uh, are there religious guidelines as to when, uh, how old um, the child has to be until the duty of the parent finishes? Um, or the duty for upbringing or providing? Both, okay. As far as the upbringing is concerned, 24 years is the time of tarbiyat. After that, the parents don't have a responsibility if the child does anything wrong. Is the child's, you know, problem, as far as you know, akhirat is concerned. When it comes to the providing, um, if the child is in need and the child is not able to support himself, even using the term child at, at that age would not be appropriate. There is no age limit there. The father has to provide unless the child is being negligent and lazy. You know, becomes into dependency syndrome, then they have to kind of, you know, uh, make them realize the real life. Uh, otherwise, if they are, let's say, you know, God forbid there is a child who is handicapped, is not able to earn. The father would still have the duty of providing for the child, even if the child is 25 or 30 years old. So in terms of gender roles, uh, like you said that Islam requires the man to like provide financially, and uh, even the household chores are not like a requirement for uh, the woman. Are there any responsibilities for women, according to Islam, in the family life? If you're talking about the responsibilities on the wife, as far as, you know, household chores and things like that are concerned, there is nothing in the form of wajib as an obligation. 
Islam wanted to make it clear so that the husband does not ever think that, oh, she must do this. Whether it is cooking or cleaning or even taking care of the children. There are certain rules in Islam which are only there for the books, not to be, you know, implemented. For example, there is a law which says, if a mother is breastfeeding her own child, she has a right to ask money for it from the father. Because providing the milk is the duty of the father. It's her own child. But if she wants, if she wants, and I don't think any mother would ever ask that. But the law is there in the book. Why is it there? Just to make the husband realize that, okay, don't take things granted. So if just feeding her own child, you know, she can demand, what about other things? But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put this love in the heart of the mother. She does this, you know, takes care of the children and the house and the husband out of her own love. If things are done out of love, Allah doesn't have to legislate a law. Any other questions about this particular topic? Okay. So we're just going to wrap up with our final Q&A for 15 minutes. So we're just going to have questions on each side. So we're going to have three questions on each side. We'll go one by one. Uh, so we'll just start from the lady's side. Um, so if you have a question, please go ahead. If a man and woman can recite nikah themselves, why is it that usually the nikah is recited by a malana? So the, there are certain... Uh, a man and a woman can recite their own nikah. But is there a recommendation that they should recite their own nikah? No. Bibi Fatima was an Arab or not, she knew Arabic. She could have recited her own nikah, but she didn't. Rasulullah did that on, on her behalf. Uh, and so, although we see the, the Sharia says a husband and a wife or a man and a woman who wants to get married, they can recite in the sense that if they are stuck in a situation, there is no normal ways of doing things, you know, this would be still an option there. The norm in the Muslim societies across the cultural, you know, lines is that not necessarily a maulana, but somebody who is an elder in the community or the family would recite. You know, I had studied uh, almost 10 years in Qom you know, almost graduating at that time. But when it came to the issue of nikah, I didn't recite my own nikah. I had my friend who recited on my behalf. 
So it's not necessarily to say, oh, it's my haq and my right. These days we are going too much into this, you know, my right and this and that. No, it, it, it is the norm. I think it gives a sense of, uh, you know, graciousness when somebody elder in the community, not necessarily the Maulana. If you don't like the Maulana, that's fine. Guys, you can get somebody that you like, you know, an elder in the family or in the community. You know, they can come and, and recite. So uh, the trend that we see these days, we just let it go because there is nothing prohibition about it. And we don't insi insist that, okay, you know, a Maulana or an Ali or a Sheikh or an elder has to recite. Uh, but that, that is not necessarily the recommendation, no. Okay, so we have a question on the guy's side. So if a male university student cannot work while studying, should they avoid marriage because they cannot provide the nafaqa or like the sustenance that's required by the male? Or is it okay as long as both partners understand the situation before getting married? Or is it wrong? There are all different possibilities there. If you look at my book, Marriage and Morals in Islam, which was published in mid-90s, I have a whole discussion there about this age of, age of marriage and how to deal with the early marriage where you don't have financial you know, capability to maintain yourself, your wife. You know, uh, we have different scenarios there. It is more, I think, the parents should get involved in this issue. The couples can start a simple life and parents from the both sides can initially help them while they are going through their studies. If the students can go, go and get a, you know, OSEP loan to continue their education, I think it's more important for the parents to give a loan to their children to get married and start a simple life. Not a luxury life, you know. And so, that, that should not be a barrier as far as uh, marriage is concerned. Yeah. So, and, and, and this is where we need to have a change in the mentality or on both generations, the parents' generation as well as the young people themselves. In terms of um, Amr Bil Ma'roof, so if a friend were to post a picture, let's say on social media with like a lot of her hair showing, for example, is it my duty to tell her? And also by me liking that picture, is it okay? Like, does it show that I'm endorsing it? If you know that she will listen to your words and you will have an impact on her, then you should advise her that this is not right. Uh, remember, Committing a sin is one thing, and then uh, displaying that, propagating that, is even worse. People don't realize, they think, oh, this is norm, everybody does this. But social media is becoming a big fitna. It's not actually, you know, Facebook is not just Facebook, it's facade book. You know, it, it, it's really 
getting out of hand the way people are using it. They think, oh, everybody is doing it, so this should be okay. No, it is not okay. And yes, if you click that you like it, then you are actually, in a way, encouraging her that what she is doing is okay. And so we have many, many serious problems as far as the uh, social media is concerned. Um, unfortunately, you hear, you, these days even you see some sisters reciting uh, marsias and qasidas and poetry on, on YouTube. You know, just because you are doing a religious, uh, you know, narration doesn't mean it's okay to go out on, 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 on that media. You have to be careful about it. Um, and, and this is same for, you know, men or women, doesn't matter at all. What surprises me sometimes, the marriage takes place here, and then the photographer becomes the guide. They will just listen to what the photographer is saying. Or stand in this way, on that way. They'll take this, them to this mandir on uh, Highway 427. And make them stand up in front of this, you know, mandir and get pictures. Come on. Are you a Muslim? You want to stand there on the, uh, you know, in front of the mandir to get your uh, wedding day pictures taken? Where are we going? So let us put some sense in, in our own minds about, you know, the pride of our own values and things. And, and then, you know, putting it on social media for the whole world to see that, you know. So we have to be very careful about it. I just have uh, one question from social media um, that I would like to address. So it asks, what does our faith teach us about visiting the shrines of saints or peers in countries like Pakistan and India? Also, there are often material things associated with visiting them and taking chadars, flowers, etc. Does Islam permit this? Well, when it comes to these, uh, you know, so-called saints in, in, in Pakistan or other places, uh, which are more uh, associated with the Sufi Muslim uh, groups, um, our duty, if, if they were good people and they were lovers of Ahlul Bayt, that's, that's the main criteria. And if you go there, you know, the only thing is you know, recite Surah Fatiha for them. There's nothing like putting this chador and things like that. These are all traditions that they have, which is no basis in our, uh, you know, Sharia. Any question from the girl side? I'm just curious about the Shia matchmaking event which is going to be held tomorrow at the center. Uh, what are the Islamic guidelines regarding that? Because it's kind of an initiative which is not too familiar with the Shia communities like elsewhere, like in the East, in East Africa, South Asia. Well, the, I think in the East we had certain, you know, uh, not necessarily organized way of, you know, matchmaking, where the family, the extended family, the friend circle would get involved. Unfortunately, coming to the west, western part of the world, we have, we have become more self-centered. We don't, that network of extended family 
or the friend circles is there, but it doesn't have that impact the way there in the in the East. Uh, so those were the the ways by which matchmaking would take place. So now we come to the Western part of the world, and there are situations where uh, you know many men and women are left out. So this has been an issue all along in all different communities. And um, unfortunately, some communities have found ways. They just look at the other communities, non-Muslims, how they do things, they just do it. It's more a, like fish market. You know, there's no hijab, no Islamic, you know, values are there. It's just like, you know, and those who are the most beautiful or the most handsome, get, they get picked up and that's it. Uh, you know, whereas what do you see uh, do, happening now is that we have looked at different models where the Sharia values are in, enforced and uh, it is supervised. The hijab issue is there also and so they go and get, the time also would come where they will be able to see one another, you know, as uh, in, individuals. After that, of course, it is not the organizers who are responsible after that. Uh, so we looked at different uh, ways, and this was one of the methods which I was uh, told that it is working very well within the guidelines of the Sharia, and therefore we endorse it. And so this is, I think, the second event in Toronto of that kind. So just one more question on each side. So if the sisters want to ask their final question, and any other questions that were not asked, the monitors, we hopefully can um, answer that at a later time. Okay, so does the parent's obligation of taking care of the daughter stop when she gets married and become the husband's instead? Does the parent's obligation of taking care of the daughter stop when she gets married and become the husband's instead? So this is after the wedding? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, because it could be there was a nikah, but the wedding has not taken place. So, till the wedding, of course, the father would still be responsible. After the wedding, the responsibility of providing goes to the husband. I have two more questions that are a little bit black and white, if we can ask those, please. All right, so it goes, can we clap during the happy surges? I think, can we clap during happy... Happy events? Okay. Events? Yeah. yeah, yeah, during happy events. Mm. It is not haram, but the issue is that if we have a method like salawat done in a good way, why abandon that and go with the clapping? Because if you look at the Quran, actually there is a, an example of the mushrikeen going around the Kaaba at the time of tawaf, clapping. And that is kind of put in a negative context. So I don't really, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's haram, no. Uh, 
um, in some of the gatherings which are not religious uh, of religious nature, which we see even in our center here, where clapping takes place. But uh, in a religious gathering, I think you know salawat would be more appropriate. And um, lastly, a follow-up to the question about the pictures of a woman when she's a child. Um, what about when the woman is Balik? Can a man, a non-Mahram, see pictures of her when she is Balik without hijab? If the picture is of a lady who is Baliga, uh, then no, the, the non-Mahram man cannot see. Only when we talk about the issue of, you know, uh, initial discussions about marriage, it is allowed for the man and the woman to be without hijab once before they make their final decision whether they want to get married or not. But that's the only exception to the rule. <clears throat> Um, so I have a question about namaz. So um, in our living room where we sometimes do namaz, there's this statue of a horse for decoration. So when my mom does namaz in front of there, um, she will cover it with a blanket so as to not make it look like she's praying towards a statue. But usually when I do namaz there, I tend to not cover it because in my intention, I know that I'm not associating it with Allah. So is it okay if I don't cover that statue? And the same kind of goes for like clothing. If I wear shirts that have like a bear or like a snake on it while I do namaz, as long as I know that I'm not attributing, attributing that to Allah, is it fine if I can wear that? As far as the statue of living things are concerned, uh, it is makru to do namaz in front of something which is an image or a shape of, uh, of a living thing whether human or um, animal. So if that is the normal place where you do the namaz at home, I think you should remove it and put it on the side or somewhere else. Or place, change your place of namaz. Uh, because the karahat would be there. It will be makru to do that. Um, as far as wearing a shirt which has the image of uh, you know, any symbol or image of a person or an animal. Uh, if you're doing, doing your namaz alone, furada is fine. But if you come to a jamaat where the person standing behind you would be looking at that image, you're creating problem for that person. So it will not be appropriate at all in the jamaat setting uh, to come with a shirt like that. By itself, if you're alone, that's fine. Just a quick question about the practice of Sayyid ulamas wearing black turbans and non-Sayyid ulamas wearing white turbans. Is this a practice which is cultural or is this from the sunnah of the imams? And if there are like mujtahidas or alimas, do they have this segregation as well in abayas or something like that? Uh, the tradition of the ulama wearing the amama black and white. So the black is worn by those who's 
ancestry goes to the prophet through bi fatimah zahra sallallahu alaiha um and those who are not they wear a uh, white turban uh this is not necessarily a religious uh thing it is more a cultural thing which has evolved among the shias of all cultural backgrounds this and since now this has become a sign to say that okay you know is this a cultural thing so i'm going to wear it where a person who is not sayyid wearing a black turban would be kind of an indication that he is saying he is a sayyid and so there would be implication there although it's a cultural thing but it might be misleading for others when they look at the person so you have to respect that in that way but origin the it is not religious uh, originally a religious thing no it has evolved more as a as a culture from the days of uh, bonu abbas onwards and as far as the women uh, no they they don't have an awama as such no this is only for the um majority of our ulama of course they are from the shiukh they are not from the sadat yeah. even among the maraji so that last question uh, wraps up our event for today i just want to thank walana rizvi on behalf of jiw and all the youth here um for providing us with a lot of knowledge today about various topics so if you can just all do a re- recite our loud salawat for him allahumma And inshallah we do hope to keep continuing to do these events uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, so if you did enjoy the event please um provide us with your feedback on our social platform and um stay tuned for our next event which will happen next month uh, which will feature Nasia which is a youth uh, youth helpline. And we do have a feedback form coming out so please do um I guess fill that in when it comes to your emails hopefully around tomorrow. Thank you. And make sure you just collect all your garbage uh, that you have with you and just um throw on your way out. And thank, thank you. you for staying out so late. <laughs>